0: It's Roderick's Rendezvous, an occasionally unprepared, mostly semi-weekly, creative and conversational sandbox hosted by Seattle writer, musician, and retired Senator John Roderick. John begins the program with some thoughts on privilege, being a productive artist, and attempting creative work in a building that used to be an immigration prison.
1: Uh, And the walls are all tile, so uh, if there's any splatter it's easy to clean up, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a bit, this was the style of the time.
0: A little later, John has a conversation with his good friend Jason Finn, drummer for the band The Presidents of the United States of America.
2: It would run counter to our friendship to support one another's uh, creative endeavors in any way. Exactly, and and, and, and against the style of Seattle yeah. and the Northwest yes, in general. Yes, that's right, that's
0: right. <laughs> All that and more on Roderick's Rendezvous.
1: So tonight's show uh, is going to be about what I've been thinking about
0: the last couple of days.
1: And I'll fill you in on how I how I got to be thinking about these things. I've recently rented an office space as part of my uh, larger project to get myself organized and become a useful, productive artist in the community. And it's still an open question whether uh, I am a useful, productive ar- art artist, whether I'm just playing a game of, like, moving the deck chairs around on myself before I end up getting a job as a government functionary. <laughs> um, so I rented an art space, which was going to be a space that I would uh, I, I would have exclusively for the purposes of making art. And uh, I found a space, with the help of my friends, in the INS building. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it's a Seattle institution, uh, this building on the edge of Chinatown, a beautiful kind of 1930s art deco pile of tile uh, that was built because Seattle was a, you know, a port where people immigrated to the United States and every week or so there's a, there traditionally was one more person whose papers weren't in order, who needed to be confined in a cell, (laughs) sometimes with his entire family, uh, while the government figured out what their immigration status was. And so for 90 years, 80 or 90 years, this building sat there as kind of the portal to America for a lot of people. It was the Ellis Island of the Northwest. And then post 9-11, the immigration laws changed because suddenly everyone from somewhere else was a massive threat to us. And uh, the laws were changed in such a way that if you committed any crime and you were in America as an alien. Uh, you were subject to deportation, um, and that includes, like, traffic stops and, you know, like, minor, minor issues. You could be deported, and so this building, which had, you know, f- served as our Ellis Island for all these decades, uh, there traditionally, they had about 30 or 40 people confined there waiting for their status to change. Suddenly, they had 400 people crammed in this building, and they couldn't It was no longer a workable building. So they built a new immigration prison down by Tacoma. Not a coincidence. (laughs) And then this building was left fallow, uh, just sort of abandoned. And it was bought by a speculating property group who thought that they were going to fill it with T1 Internet and rent it to all the startups that were clamoring for space in the International District. (laughs) And then the economy tanked, and it was just empty, and you know festering. And so what to do? Let's rent it to artists, uh, because they were in the process of kicking all the artists out of Pioneer Square, because they were successfully adding T1 internet to those buildings. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it's a fantastic building and a fantastic space. But unfortunately, the space I rented uh, was one of two spaces in the entire building. It, first of all, it used to be a cell. You can see where the bars used to be on the windows. And so uh, surely hundreds if not thousands of people have spent the night or maybe weeks or maybe six months confined to this room. Uh, and the walls are all tile. So uh, if there's any splatter, it's easy to clean up. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a bit th- this was the style of the time. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, there was one of two spaces in the entire building where they inexplicably tried to refinish the floors and refinished them with a sort of a combination of um, wax and DDT and uh, like uh, aviation gasoline. And so, uh, and I'm very sensitive to chemical smells because I'm a nerd. And as you know, being a nerd means being extra sensitive to shit that other people can't even tell is there. <laughs> so I walk into this room, and I'm like, oh, 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 oh. and everybody else is like, what are you doing? What do you, what do you mean? It's just like there's like, the flowers are growing, and I'm like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And so I've had the, the INS people clean this space for me three or four different times. And each time you get the sense that the cleaning people are like, yeah, we cleaned it. It's as clean as a place can be. And I walk in, and it's like visible fumes in the air. And I almost now am ready to abandon the space, sadly. But one night recently, I was in there by myself late at night, and I was choking on the fumes, and I was trying to toughen myself up and say, like, you're an artist. You're in a, you're, you have an artist space in an old prison. Like, toughen up. I couldn't, I was getting a sore throat, my nose was running, and I said, I'm going to go across to the gas station and get some water. And so I went downstairs, and this building is in a unique kind of triangle of the city, which for, really, when you think about it, for 150 years has been the scumbag concentration point. (laughs) Um, Because... When Seattle was originally built, like this, uh, this whole area was a mud flat, right? That area down there by the railroad stations, everything to the, um, to the south of Jackson Street was a, f- was a mud flat where the tide came in, and it was underwater. The tide went all the way to I-5 at high tide, and this area was, was, uh, was just, well, it was sea. And over the course of those first few years of Seattle, we filled that area in with dirt, and tried to reclaim it. And then it became kind of a, like a place where people would dock their boats. And r- right the first 50 years of Seattle, the only way here was by boat. So the port was where everyone came. And the people that hung around the port were generally the people who couldn't like, make it up the three streets to the town. Right, like the port was, what, where, what ports have always been, the, the area that was in flux and full of transient people. And then that area became where the railroad stations were. And when people came via the rail, that was sort of the area around the train station where the people that didn't have another place to go went. Now we all come by car. Of course, that area is where all the freeway exits drop. So this area has, like, spiritually the resonation of hundreds of years of just people stuck in this um, eddy, I guess. It's It's a place of eddying. The road, airport way, that comes in from the airport was originally called Seattle Boulevard in the style of ancient times where you named the street that goes to a town after the town. Right? Centralia Boulevard. If you follow this road, you'll go to Centralia. Like, that was the attitude or the idea. This was Seattle Boulevard before they changed it to Airport Way. And there's only one stretch of it still called Seattle Boulevard, and it is the three blocks in front of the INS building. Seattle Boulevard. So if you are at Airport Way by the BMW dealership and you don't know how to get to Seattle, (laughs) just follow Seattle Boulevard. Anyway, there's a Shell station there right at the pie-shaped heart of nowhere land. And I went down to this shell station, I went across, and it's late at night, and it's a feeling there where I would not, for instance, were I a woman, I would not go there alone. If I were anyone, I would not go there alone. (laughs) But I am not, I am me, and so I am very comfortable going there alone. And I went down to the Shell Station. And I was in my shirt sleeves. I left my coat in the space because I just needed some water to clear the chemical smell out of my nose. And I walk up to the Shell Station. And there's a guy kind of standing, talking. Seems like he's talking to the Shell Station guy through the window. (laughs) And I head over to the door. And another guy is standing there. And he sees me walking toward the door. And he stops me with his hands. And he points over to the window. And I look over and he says, kind of, you got to go there. I look over and I realize, oh, at night they lock the door. You have to deal with the man through the bulletproof glass. And he will give you your menthol cigarettes or whatever it is that you're there for through, th- through the drawer. And <clears throat> I survey this situation. And I say, just in an ejaculatory way, I say, what an indignity! (laughs) Because I feel like this is too much to bear that I am now being forced to deal with a man through bulletproof glass. And the guy who's directing me looks at me with a kind of beatific look, and he says, I do not know what you mean. And I realize that this man is a homeless person who is standing out in front of the gas station. And we look at each other in a kind of pregnant moment where I am still relishing my indignity (laughs) and he is reflecting with me that he cannot share my feelings. And uh, I looked at him again and said, I do feel like this is an indignity. And he said again, I cannot understand what you mean. And we both, like, smiled a little because, of course, he did understand exactly what I meant. And I understood what he was saying. And we both kind of relaxed in this moment because he was a homeless person, and I was a, uh, a person who was fleeing his art space.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so and the person in front of me at the Bulletproof Glass was counting pennies out to buy, some, uh, to buy something. And so we had plenty of time to share this moment together. And so we started to talk, and his name uh, is Shannon, and he is from South Dakota. And he's from an Indian reservation there that's on the flats, not one of the Black Hills ones, but one of the Plains ones. And I said, how did you come to be here? And he said, well, he followed a girl. And the girl was a successful University of Washington graduate student, and somehow their love was not strong enough for her to tolerate him anymore so and in the in the great tradition of like street culture i did not press uh, either to find out how much of his story was true <laughs> or how much was just his story and also how it came that he came out here chasing this girl and now was standing in front of a shell station but we talked for a while and Of course, I was exploring all of the resonations of the idea of privilege and the fact that this is a term that we now are, we're we're engaging the idea of our privilege all the time and not always voluntarily, right? The internet is kind of forcing us to choke on it. Um, because the internet is full of scolds. And part of being a new generation is always to burn the laws of the last generation and think that you're rewriting them in a significant and substantive way. And so this idea, of course, of privilege and of my relative privilege to Shannon's was there between us. He was reflecting on it, and so was I. The fact is that when I was 17, I started to try to be uh, a more real person. I was very conscious of my privilege. And I felt like the antidote to my privilege was to become a person like Shannon. And I set about to live on the streets as a street person. And a lot of that time I spent here in Seattle um, trying to find an authentic me and trying to find an authentic wisdom of being a person where at my where my perceptions weren't clouded by my whiteness or my richness or my smartness but that I really could see uh what I what what I imagined was the truth behind the curtain i remember standing down in the pike place market with a friend who worked there and he he said uh, I want to I do an experiment with you. He said, how many American Indians do you see right now from where you're standing? And I looked and I was like, none. And he said, look again. We were just right in the center of the market there by the pig and I looked and I realized, oh, oh there's one, there's one. And there were six Native Americans standing just there, and I didn't see them at first, because I had, because my eye had trained itself to not see Native Americans. They are, in a situation like that, almost invariably going to be someone who is, uh, hard for me to see, a panhandler or a, uh, or a street drunk, or somebody that was going to be like difficult for me to confront. And so I had learned to just make them invisible. And we stood there and watched the crowds move through the market. And I was dumbfounded and impressed to see that nobody saw them. There were Native Americans all around us in the Pike Place Market, and none of us could see them. And this friend who worked in the market like, ran this idea by me because he sat there all day and watched it. And he had become, he, they had become visible to him. And he wanted me to see that, too, and see how, they, how invisible they were. But in my, in my years of trying to live on the street in Seattle, in one sense, the idea that I could always get off the street was, uh, was a protection, a kind of psychic um, parachute where I knew that if it got too bad, I wasn't alone in the world, and I could always go present myself, clean myself up, and present myself in such a way that I would be welcomed back to the world. Um, But as I got older, I realized that that psychic parachute was a fantasy. There are people like me all the time who fall through the floor. And the reality of Shannon, uh, my friend at the at the gas station was that he had fallen, and not completely, he was young enough that there was still a smugness on his face. Uh, Which is the smugness that I learned transacting with homeless people is very often like the, the heat that keeps them warm and that gathers them together. The smugness of feeling like we are citizens. And that citizen is about as dirty a word as you can utter in a street culture. Um, there are a lot of us here who feel, I'm sure even in this room, who feel that they are members of a, an underclass, um, because of our sexual orientation or our, you know, our status. Because as a culture now, we're so conscious of our status as people who are underprivileged. Like that is the status that we seek. The status of being, um, disenfranchised. But if, if you have a driver's license, you're a citizen. I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen now after years and years of trying not to be one. And that contempt for citizenship is a thing that that binds the the real like underculture together. Shannon was conscious of my privilege. The same way that I was, but he was conscious of it as being handcuffs um in a way, like there was nothing that I could do about the disparity in our situation, and nothing he could do but what was what was true in the in that moment and true for me that all those years was the the awareness that f- the that indignance that I felt about this window being closed and about having to stand out in the street with these street people while I was waiting to get my water, was a thing that I was paying for every day through all the tiny and sometimes giant indignities of being a citizen. The waiting in line and the, the licensing and the taxes and the stopping at stop signs and the doing what I'm supposed to are like investments that I'm making in my citizenship every day, that Shannon feels free of. So I kind of walked away from that experience and was reflecting the entire time on this idea that we are we're always trying to we're always trying to aspire to equality by knocking privileged people down and it's incredibly difficult to raise underprivileged people up through whatever like methodology we we, dr- we dream up you know we've been doing it for thousands of years how do you solve this intractable problem and right now we're in a cultural moment where we feel like privilege is a thing that needs to be that needs to be destroyed in ourselves first but in fact my privilege is a is a thing that i have that i that i've worked for and that i that i w- am still working for every day and it requires that i do so much that i'm unconscious of that i participate so much in a world that i don't necessarily endorse but that affords me the right to call the police and it affords me the right to have re- the redress of the law. This area down by the INS building was also the site of two of Seattle's great sort of uh, black eyes. It was the site of our Hooverville, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but during the Depression, that entire area, all those flats, were tar paper shacks. Um, Sort of stretching as far as the eye could see, where the poor sort of lived in an ungoverned tent city, much like the tent cities that just sort of moved up the Beacon Hill. S- still, a hundred years later, still the tent, same tent city, just moved up on the slope. But also, this was exactly the spot of the anti-Chinese riots uh, of the late 1800s, and the anti-Chinese riots were an event where, you know, the There was a massive immigration of Chinese people to America in the 1840s to work the gold claims in San Francisco or, you know, in California. The the gold mining was so labor intensive and it was a big opportunity for Chinese to come emigrate here and start to work. And then as the gold claims in California kind of got played out, the Chinese population moved up and down the coast to Seattle and down to LA and so even by 1870 there was a large population of Chinese here and the the complaint was primarily economic that they worked for less than whites and refused to urban or refused to unionize and so the local population was you know grew to be very hostile toward them not initially out of a racist impulse but out of a Like a union busting impulse. And in 1889, there was a, it sort of came to a head in this whole region. And a big mob stormed Chinatown, forced everyone out of their homes, and forced them down to the docks at Pitchfork Point to put them on boats and send them to San Francisco. And they got them down there and realized that the mob didn't have enough money to pay their fare. The boat captains were like, well, we're not going to take them for free. And the Chinese were like, well, we've only got, they had enough money for 90 people. The Chinese had enough money to pay the fare for 90 of themselves. But like 260 more had no money. And the mob rioted and threatened to push them into the sea. And the government sent troops here. And the troops actually bivouacked out in Discovery Park. And that is how Discovery Park became a military base. Uh, it was originally sort of a, a camp for the troops that were sent here to quell the anti-Chinese riots. And one of the men at the head of the rioting white people was my great uncle, I'm sorry, great granduncle Junius Rochester who was, in the great tradition of my family, a lawyer. <laughs> who was kind of a judge for a while. Junius, his brother, George Alfred Caldwell Rochester, and my father, all three were judges for a while. My dad was an administrative law judge at one point in his career. And G- Uncle Junius was a l- judge. GAC was a ju- They called him Judge. But I think they were really judges. As in, here come to judge. <laughs> like, justice of the pieces. Like, cowboy judges. Like, we need a judge. We're going to string this guy up. We need a judge. It's you. String him up. <laughs> uh, and great Uncle Junius was a member of the Washington. Well, no, there wasn't a Washington State Bar at this time. But he was a member of a, He had a law office downtown. And he was one of the loudest sort of instigators of this rioting. His father had fought for the Confederacy in Kentucky, and he had come out west and was making a new life for himself, which I think he immigrated here five years before. And he felt like the Chinese were a big threat to his law practice. And when I discovered this, Fact, a dozen years ago, some local lawyer, an acquaintance of my family, mailed this—mailed some historical document to me in the, uh, in the grand tradition of lawyers subtly fucking with the sons of their competition. <laughs> Thought you might be interested in this. I discovered it in the archives. <laughs> uh, and I read it, and I was fascinated by it. Because my Uncle Junius, who is alive now, is a historian. And Uncle Junius had written a a long article for the Washington State Historical Society about his great-uncle Junius, his namesake. And I went and read the article that Junius had written, and he said in the article uh, how distinguished Junius was, and how what a great American he was and a wonderful sort of founder of the local area, we, And and there was some whispering, an unfortunate whispering, that maybe he shared the sympathies of some of the rioters because he represented them in the trial for rioting. But let us leave that aside as we talk about his great career. And the fact that he then developed a gambling addiction to Pharaoh and was arrested in Portland with some gambling debts and then I think maybe died in prison. An illustrious man, however. (laughs) But Junius Junius felt that his history here, his inglorious racist history here, was shameful to him so much that he, he wrote this sort of bullshit biography of him when in fact I had the documentation that he was like standing on a chair waving a pitchfork. (laughs) He was not unfortunately associated with a few of the rioters. It uh, It is part of my history here in Seattle and part of my history as an artist in the INS building. And maybe the fumes that are choking me are the fumes of 260 indignant Chinese. There's a lot of indignity. Um, Where we're sitting right now, uh, here on Second Avenue, fortunately for us, has no ghosts. There are no ghosts here. Because this, the eastern side of Second Avenue, um, for all of recorded human history until 100 years ago, uh, was 80 feet under the ground. That the geography of here was a cliff. And Second Avenue was the face of the cliff. And the cliff dropped 200 feet to Elliott Bay. Um, and so the early settlers decided that that was, well, honestly, too difficult for horses, <laughs> which were the main engines of progress at the time. And so they spent 20 years sluicing this cliff down into the bay, and they created Harbor Island, and they took all the mud and trucked it down and filled in the mud flats where the INS building is. So what filled in that area and why that area is no longer ocean is the land that was here. And whatever Native Americans lived here for thousands of years, they lived 80 feet that way. So we're below even the worms. There was nothing here. We can have a fresh start (laughs) in Belltown. No resonation of any kind, (laughs) except maybe some rock or long-dead turtles prehistoric beavers, Did somebody is that a prehistoric beaver I heard backstage? Uh, anyway, those are the thoughts that I've been having. And one of the things that it, it occurs to me as I drive around town trying to make sense of all this, which I cannot do, I cannot make sense of it. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a solution and my whole young life I've spent looking for a solution to human problems. And I've looked to a solution through law and through culture and through haranguing and through, uh, for a long time, my preferred method was dictatorship of me. And a few years ago, I I settled upon the idea that everybody has it hard, or it's corollary, er, no one has it easy. And I realized when I when I understood that no one had it easy, I was freed of a lot of tension, because so much of my young life had been spent at war with people whom I understood to have it easy. And then I realized that nobody had it easy. And that carried me along for a long time. No one has it easy. But recently, I've taken a, I've taken a new... Uh, I've taken it a new step, which is that, you know, the the um, the tradition of improv comedy is to never say no, is to always say yes and. And I feel like the solution to so many of our cultural problems feels like we need to say no. Um, and in fact, what we need to say is yes and. Uh, we our instinct is always to ban. Our first instinct is always to ban, to ban the unpleasant word, to ban the, the book, to ban the thought. And all these unpleasant words and books and thoughts and experiences and racist riots and prisons and culture that so offends us when we're young is always the product of so much that came before, and it means so much more than we can know. And really, all I'm trying to do is to accept what I'm given in our culture, and then add to it in whatever small way I can. So that is my goal with this show too, and with everything I make in my toxic art space is to make this new thing that adds and doesn't try to doesn't try to to add by subtracting, but just adds.
0: And now an interview with Jason Finn, drummer for the band The Presidents of the United States of America.
1: Yeah, is this where we're having the bummer podcast? This is the bummer is, yeah, podcast, okay, yeah. Rich. Were you hoping that we, that this was a comedy podcast?
2: I, I hoped we would extemporize humorously or write 2,500-word pieces that we would recite.
1: Well, let's start now. Okay. I'm going to take my hat off. What did it do to my hair? My, my, I think it's, it's fucked up, right?
2: Yeah, it's not good.
1: It's not good. So welcome to the program. Thank
2: you. Um, it's been so long that I've wanted to do this. You know I, I listen to your podcast. I, I'm usually at an episode or two behind. You know, you can only walk the dog for so long uh, in the day but but uh, walking I the dog was always a
1: euphemism for smoking well hot <laughs> back in the old days.
2: Yeah, yeah, the Comet Tavern days. <laughs> uh, I always have a lot of uh, uh, critiques mm-hmm. right? that I just wish I could just like break in real time and just be like,
1: no, 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 no. That's not how it happened. I think that's a common experience of people yeah. listening to the Roderick on the line.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Does anybody else feel that too? I mean, like, you, like if there was a way to like just loop in a third person or or a, or or maybe all of us in a
1: chat room. Yeah, unfortunately, that technology doesn't yeah. exist.
2: Yeah,
1: chat room. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Merlin controls the internet, so he, he tells me yeah. that there's only two microphones in the world.
2: Merlin, uh, Merlin is home right now with an empty inbox,
1: right? That's inbox right. zero. That's right. <laughs> just looking at it,
2: going ah, oh, somebody
1: whooped me. He's shotgunning uh, soda water, and yeah, he is, yeah. thanking God that he's not up here.
2: Uh, that was a disturbing factoid that he shared about himself. That, that you seem to know already. His his partner Merlin, he he just mentioned, uh, uh, literally drinks like 15 cans of, of soda water a day. Now this is. It's, it's fairly recent, but we all know that soda water is, like, bad for us now, right? Did we, it's, it's a thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's
1: obviously it a thing. An anti um, antioxidant? Yeah,
2: it's, it's the water people. that are like, oh, regular water is so much better that you're really not supposed to... Uh, uh. Particularly if it's cold. If it's cold, it's like it's, it, it's, it's shutting down all your... Uh, uh, look your, it,
1: your, look your, at them, they're your turning your on you. They're so mad. I
2: know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's setting a pretty low bar if soda water is on the, on the list.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I stopped eating gluten... Right? See? See? Check your yeah. privilege. Um, I, and uh, and I, was having, I was having a good time doing that. I felt like that was good. And yeah. then, of course, I read the inevitable article in a science magazine that told me that stopping eating gluten was the equivalent of eating a pack of cigarettes a day.
2: Right. And was I this was one like, of the guys that, that was saying that we misdiagnosed all the people that we misdiagnosed with celiac disease the first time? Yeah. You, can't, yeah. you cannot
1: win in this yeah. world.
2: Yeah. Um, are you still uh, on that? No. So you that was your out right there. You're I like, just no, eat, no, no, no.
1: I just eat yeah, a ton yeah, of shit yeah, and I'm yeah. Good. I'm just waiting. Uh, you know we're all going to die. We should all smoke. We should smoke now. Yeah. Yes. You have one fan in the room. I know. I know. You should know about him, young lady, that he <laughs> will take you home.
2: With a a quick stop at my mother's birthday on the way. <laughs> up the hill.
1: So when you when when you listen, yeah, that you would think it was charming yeah, yeah. until you see, until you realize that his mother has a restraining order against you know. him. Uh, um, no, against him. So you wish to uh, you wish to respond to Roderick on the line. Uh, uh, what are, what is the 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 what is the the general theme of your complaint or what? How would how would you most want to participate?
2: Oh, I I don't know. It's only a complaint. Uh, uh, probably barely half the time. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to add to the. To uh-huh. the discussion a lot. I mean, I mean, sir, uh, just tonight. Um, yes, and the idea of yes and is great. It's very super train, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I, you know, it'd be nice to pile on there.
1: But uh, pile on, pile on. Yes, and. Oh, I just like the uh, I like the
2: positivity. I don't, I don't think banning stuff works, right? I mean, we all we all know this. Um, uh,
1: yes, yeah. and as a political philosopher. Oh God! Right? You're reacting just <laughs> y- like Merlin.
0: You're would. exhausting. No, 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 Merlin. <laughs>
1: Merlin edits,
2: I think more than uh, it seems like he does he tells me he doesn't edit at all
1: yeah that's you feel like there's editing
2: because I feel yeah, I feel like there's points where he where he's yelling at you probably and swearing.
1: no no he he stopped doing that after our after our mythical uh, six hour religious argument. <laughs> Now that
2: yeah. I've heard about this, there, there's an episode where that the, the, the episode there, there's there's several hours that, 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 that's just unreleased. Now this is what you you start your subscription service with, right away you get the seven and a half hour religion episode <laughs> sent to your inbox,
1: right? It's it's like you get you get ten records ten records for yeah, a penny. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> oh. And then after that every record is nine ninety nine. Ten deep barsook catalog records for a penny. Uh, so, uh, how is it that you came to listen to Roderick on the line? It seems like uh, it seems like it would be uh, not in the spirit of our friendship, you uh, sort of like partially despising me, right. that you would listen to me talk to another ding-a-ling for an hour yeah. at a time while you're running or whatever. how did that How did it, that come to be? It's true it, it would run, it would run
2: counter to our friendship to support one another's uh, creative endeavors in any way exactly and and, and, and against the style of Seattle yeah. and the Northwest yes, in general. That's right that's right. <laughs> Um, our friends are our friends until they become our foes by becoming successful. That's in right. Some way or some. Yeah. Uh, Socrates said that I think. Mm-hmm. Socrates was the original drummer in Yeah. No, Tad.
1: Yeah. Morrissey said it yeah. after Socrates. Right, right. Yeah. He's supposed to be nice. Morrissey. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. Yeah. Big fan.
2: <laughs> Super classy. <laughs> um, where were we? in? Oh, oh yeah. I, I I don't remember. I was clearly tricked into it because mm-hmm. I, I I you know to this day I've only met Merlin uh, uh, a couple times. Uh, so, it, 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 are you saying it wasn't you who, who got me? No, I can't yeah, imagine yeah, because I don't I self-promote. Just, I like the po- I'm kind of a techie. I don't know if you, you yeah. This you can is tell an- by my four-button jacket that I'm a little bit of a techie. So, I I, I pick up on the, the podcast pretty quickly. Four-button jacket reads
1: basketball player to me. It does kind yeah. of, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it. I had this four-button jacket that, <laughs> that looked really good. I'm, I'm short.
1: I really, so, I, what I'm loving right now is the stools and the suit and everything. It's like a forced perspective. Yeah, yeah. It just is like, he's actually uh, seven feet tall.
2: This is a, this is a jacket and uh, trousers that I put on for John. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, running counter again to my normal uh, uh, dressing up strategy. Although I do, I, I agree with you, going downtown is a special occasion.
1: And, right. and, and, and you should, you know. You're a drummer, and usually you like a fabric that wicks away sweat.
2: Well, yes, but that, there's that, and I also have all my uh, my my sporty pursuits, my CrossFit and whatnot, and yeah. and you can't uh, you can't wear a jacket for any of that.
1: No. But you, but, yeah, I know something's uh, going yeah, on. There. Oh, you know what? They're wheeling in the cart. <laughs> Is there? A, oh, no, I guess they're yeah. not. Um, it's a cake cart. Uh, Jason and I also uh, share kind of a, another thing, which is that we transitioned both from uh, thinking that we were cool rock dudes yeah. who were going to be cool rock dudes forever. We got in under the wire, and then they closed the door. No more cool rock dudes. Yeah. All new rock dudes were going to be lame, and we were in under the wire. And then we realized that we, uh, that, that wasn't going to hold us anymore. And we transitioned to being nerd rock dudes together. Just in time for the
2: huge nerd wave. Just in time! Just like sort of swept across
1: uh, pop culture. John Hodgman on the
2: cover of Time, you know,
1: and and, and whatnot. So we went to PAX together for the first time. We went to Comic Con in San Diego together for the first time. Uh, We have been to uh, Adam Savage's uh, furry party together. Uh, we, we've pretty much done it all. We've, we've, uh, we've had it like a, like a, we've both been in the Millennium Falcon the whole nine. Right. We did the Kessel Run in under nine parsecs. It was,
2: uh, it was a really good time or distance or something. Um, yeah, th- that wasn't that long ago. I, I don't, I don't know how you know Hodgman, uh, but. I know him through Colton, who Jonathan Colton, who, who I just met randomly on Twitter. This guy's interesting. I'm gonna, you know, the 2009, where you could you could just tweet someone and uh, go have a beer with him, I guess. But but so so everything snowballed. And, and is that how you met Hodgman also? No, or no, I did met. Did you guys them, go to high school together? I met them
1: pre-Twitter. Um, <sighs> but in fact, I introduced you to Paul and Storm. Yes. Because Paul and Storm asked me to play with them at a show that they were doing at the Triple Door. And I couldn't make it, and I said, "I know a guy yeah. who can make Star Wars references." Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were like, "Sign him yeah. up." And now you guys are fat. You're you're like uh, thickest thieves. Thickest
2: thieves is the ter- is the is the phrase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to get across is that I felt like the whole thing kind of snowballed. That that whatever that year was, uh, um. All of a sudden we were uh flying around and, and doing the wootstocks with your and, 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 okay that first packs you're talking about that was only like four PAXes ago, maybe even three no, no,
1: it was four PAXes ago
2: and we uh okay. D- you four all PAXs know what a pax is, is right yeah. yeah it's it's the it's the thing it's right up the street there
1: we were we were so we got we were in this fortunate position being friends with some of the king nerds that <laughs> that we got like all day all access all weekend. Mega passes. Yes. That's we could barely
2: lift them. They yeah. were just these huge <laughs> laminated clubs, cudgels.
1: And, and they said something on them. I forget what it was that they said we were, but as we would walk past the booths, uh, the people that were running the booths would come leaping out, like, hello, yeah. hello, yeah. Come, come see the... Because the, ba- the badge said something like, buyer, or... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You know, tastemaker or yeah. journalist yeah. or something, and so everywhere we went, we were getting this like massive special treatment, uh, and we were already overwhelmed uh, because a lot of these people had scabbards, right. uh, and we we weren't we weren't yeah. used to like being being like run at by knights. Uh,
2: so it was at this the 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 sort of uh, uh the critical mass was at this sort of almost boiling point. And then Will Wheaton saw us and ran over and hugged us, and heads just started exploding left and right. We were like, we were like the 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 Radiohead and Led Zeppelin of of, uh, of of guys who didn't know what they were doing there. Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. <clears throat> and for a brief moment before anybody knew who we were, we had this mass, this tremendous feeling of power, like yes. we could be anybody, yeah. like we could be uh, the people that wrote the code of the internet.
2: Uh, Or or Halo.
1: We could have... Yeah, but I bet you everybody there knew who did Halo. Dude,
2: that guy walks around. That guy has
1: not paid for a drink in this town for so long.
2: Yeah, and then we hit the floor, the the gaming floor, and then it was just uh, confusing and took a long time. So, I don't know. That's kind of the con experience, and I think that that kind of bore itself out at at Comic-Con, too. Well, yeah, although... But comics version, not gaming,
1: of At Comic-Con, I had that that strange uh, epiphany where I realized at the heart of all that madness and of all, the, of all the slave layers that you had to get through to even get in the building. And then, uh, yeah, like the master sergeants, and you're, like, you're, 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 you're weeding through all these people, and at the heart of that terrible, terrible human centipede, monstrosity, like, rat king that is San Diego, there is a room full of comic books. Yeah. Which I was like, I we, we walked in there and we're looking around. And it's like, oh my god, oh my god. And then I was like, oh, boxes and boxes of old comic books, which is a thing that like ignited the the eight year old in me. And then I was like, comic books, comic books, comic books, <laughs> and you you. You were a little bored. You were like, "Let's get out of
2: here." Uh, yeah, I, I, I dabbled a little bit. You, you dropped some coins. Honestly, the only thing I remember clearly about that day was 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 getting there. We were in a rental car, and I was driving, and I don't like that in new towns. And there was a situation involving a one way street the wrong way and a tram car. Oh right. Where, <laughs> we could just, I just have this clear th- the driver going like this of the tram car, you know, or, or some sort of gesticulating, and we got out of the way in time. And then.
1: Um, uh,
2: well, we're still here, so I guess it ended well.
1: Well, it's one of those cities like Seattle is about to do. I don't know if you've noticed, but they have put a tram in on Capitol Hill that is going to open pretty soon. Oh, is there a
2: transit option on Capitol Hill? That's right. Hill? There's going to be yeah. a new
1: transit option. And the city did this thing as they were building it where they were like, well, we don't know how to do this. No one has ever built a tram in a city in, in the world before. Yeah. And so the thing we have to do, first of all, is put a blue ribbon panel together of a bunch of people who don't know anything. Yeah and then solicit opinions from the community for a year, a community that has consistently voted down transit for 100 years, and then build the most broken version of what is the least acceptable to everybody. Right. And so this thing is about to go in, and it's the same thing. We were driving into to San Diego, just normal people from out of town, just a couple of guys together, innocently at a comics convention, <laughs> driving in a rent-a-car, the least qualified of the two driving. And we we make a right on a street, and it seems like just a normal thing to do, make a it's right called, on the street. It's called ninth. And then all of a sudden, yeah. there's a train, and the guy is honking his horn and making these, like, no, no. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it was six lanes wide, and we were the only people on it besides the train. It's not like we were at risk of collision. We could see where he was going to go. Yeah. He's a train. He is. But, he, but, it, but what we had done was we had violated, like, a code, we had violated the code of San Diego, which is you don't, I don't know what. you don't, On alternate Tuesdays, you don't go opposite a train for a half a block. Right. And I, and yeah. I feel like that's going to happen here in Seattle, too. That intersection up there at, at 14th and Yesler is going to be, it's just going to be this cauldron of confusion for the next 15 years.
2: The the one at 14th is, is never going to uh, uh, reopen. Uh, I don't as, think it's as, ever going to. So thing. they
1: closed... Uh, it w- used to be i don't know if you guys are from seattle but 14th avenue used to be the secret back way to yeah. avoid the clusterfuck of 12th the bullshit of broadway the garbage i mean and then of, of everything up there and then they they just shit canned it
2: this is 3 years ago by the way they started building this, just like, uh, th- this this two block area and, it, and yeah. it, the, the whole 3 years they've been putting in about 75 yards of track uh, uh, right?
1: uh, but they needed to stop that. They needed to block it off so that yep. we all understood that they were yep. in charge, yep. and that we could not get around town anymore. I think it was Mayor McGinn's attempt to get us all to ride bicycles.
2: Uh, yeah, and that and the little paintings of bicycles everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know what else is right there? Uh, juvenile hall. Juvenile. It's two hall blocks away, and that's uh, uh,
1: uh, a place I spent some time. Oh, that's right. You did do a little juvie yeah. time. I did a little didn't time. You? Now, what did you get sent to juvie for? Uh, Drug offenses.
2: You know, let's let's move on. Uh, I'll say this: it wasn't it wasn't anything that terrible. I, I did end up spending a year at a reform school in Utah, that that was uh, uh, just a, a kind of a disaster for me uh, uh, socially, and but very good for me academically, having just flunked out of ninth grade at Garfield.
1: Look at that. You got a Garfield go, woo. Go, go Bulldogs. Yeah, Bulldogs, yeah. right. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think you can say go Bulldogs if you only do half of ninth grade <laughs> at a place.
2: No, 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 no. I, I, I flunked all of ninth grade there. <laughs> no, I did a full, of oh, the full nine months.
1: Well, and this was true of, of, of uh, people of our generation, which was that there was a real powerful pull to uh, fail as a way of being realer. Right, yeah. or of, of, you know, like, you were not going to do the high school thing like a normal. You were going to fuck it up as a way of, like, asserting your independence and your, like, honesty.
2: I guess yeah. so. You know, we didn't really know about punk. I, I, ironically enough, I learned about punk in At reform, reform school. school. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. From there, there were actually like guys from California with short, you know, buzz cuts.
1: They stuff. sent me to Outward Bound in okay. ninth grade, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is where I learned about punk. Yeah. There was a guy uh, who tied uh, uh, bandanas around the, the, his pants. Sure. Around the, and I was like, what's that about? And he was like, Pfft. Yeah. black flag. SoCal." I was like, oh, black yeah. flag. I don't know what that is. And then uh, after Outward Bound, I came out of there and I was just like. Was this, uh, Fuck itala- you, it was in Alaska, right? Uh, they sent what? me to Outward Bound in Minnesota. Wow. It's also where I, uh, where I first really learned uh, about anti-Semitism Like, they taught me so much. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing says punk like Giardia.
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Fever fever. Yeah.
1: Well, that's gross. Yeah. um, Uh. You know, I talked to Dow Constantine, our uh, King County executive. Of course. And he he says that there's a plan afoot to tear down Juvie Hall and build a brand new, spectacular juvenile rehabilitation facility where Uh. instead of, Converting at-risk youth into fully at-risk adults. (laughs) This new juvenile center, which is not a detention center, but which will be a juvenile help center, is going to make every at-risk youth a valuable member of our society through love and self-denial. And this is something that Jason and I talk about a lot. Because Jason is also a self-denialist, but in a very different way. Jason, uh, Jason is a... Uh, he and I both, as adult men in America, practice a kind of ongoing self-flagellation <laughs> as a way of trying to live forever. Yeah. And Jason's version of it is like uh, exercise and a kind of like, you know, a, a constant progress of like, y- you feel like take two steps forward so that you can enjoy the three steps back and Uh, then two steps forward and then really enjoy the slide.
2: I'm really just trying to take the two steps forward all the time. And the three steps back just happen kind of uh, organically. Oh, I see. Um, (laughs) uh, There is a pendulum effect a little bit. I'm interested in, in in his thought of, uh, of where self-denial becomes (laughs) self-denialism. Uh, uh, I think what he means by that, and he's right about you at least. Uh, 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 this stuff comes in clumps for you. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna decide, or maybe, maybe you're, you're trying to t- take it to the next, le- next level. But it's not just gluten; it's gluten and coffee and, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 bad TV shows or whatever. And it's maybe a uh, 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 tough to the coffee thing did not last, did it? No, fuck yeah. That. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah, I do feel that that uh, that denying oneself every luxury is is uh, a component of being a good citizen because we are we can afford our every whim now you know it, even even our parents generation there were certain things that they could just couldn't afford certain uh, ideas that they couldn't afford and we live now in a world of complete abundance, and yet we're not satisfied or even grateful, for the most part. Um, if I felt like our, our contemporary culture was full of gratitude for what we've accomplished, in even the last the 40 years, I would I would feel differently about it. And personally too, I don't walk around in a in a condition of gratitude that I no longer that no one in my family has to spend all Saturday ironing pillowcases which is what, which is the life my mom had that all Saturday every week was spent ironing or as she would say arning (laughs) and uh, none of us have a component of uh, servitude to our lives anymore that is just a just an unthinking component of our week right we go and exercise because there is no effort to the work that we do, and we we nitpick one another because we're not busy enough with our own survival.
2: Are you talking about just you and Merlin, or
1: no because that doesn't <laughs> I'm talking about us all like. Like we are no longer concerned yeah. with survival, yeah. and so we have all this abundance, and we are not exploiting it in terms of enjoyment. Yeah. you know like in the thirties it was it was and this is the story of of uh, of like um of industrialism. it's like if we just make a toaster that doesn't require that someone stand over a fire, then we will have all this extra time which we will devote to becoming philosopher kings. Yes. <laughs> and instead we have all this extra time which like where we're fighting boredom and we are not really as imaginative as we think. And so for for me removing small luxuries to see what my breaking point is is a part of i in a way it's a form of checking your privilege. You check it every day. You check it against, you know, you check it like this. How am I doing? Do I need a macchiato? (laughs) If I do, then the first thing I need to get rid of is macchiatos because they are, because I'm just building a prison around myself.
2: I do enjoy watching you knock them up and set them down like that when you, when you open up your freezer door and show the nine packs of cigarettes in there that you've had in there for, (laughs) However many years. Yeah, I look at them every morning. There they are. Yeah.
1: I, I actually did. I was going through a box of light bulbs the other day uh, because that's one of my collections, that's light bulbs. Because you do. You collect and those, at the yeah. bottom of this b- box of light bulbs, I found a pack of American spirits. Yes. And I was like, I don't even like American spirits. But I planted this here five years ago knowing that one day I would need a light bulb and that maybe I would be feeling weak. And this little, this little bear trap here was just waiting to, like, Khwah!
2: now you're smoking again. <laughs> Your Zippo collection was, like, 18 inches to the left. <laughs>
1: okay, so, anyway, thank you all. That th- That is the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Finn.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, John Roderick. Of John Roderick's Rendezvous.
0: Big thanks to Jason Finn for being on the show today. Be sure to pick up the two latest President's albums. Kudos to you, their studio album. And thanks for the feedback, special live album at presidentsrock.com. All guests on Roderick's Rendezvous receive a mug with John's face on it. To purchase your own, or to purchase tickets to a live recording of the show, go to johnroderick.com. Roderick's Rendezvous is recorded live inside the Jewel Box Theater at the Rendezvous Restaurant and Lounge in Seattle. The show is produced by Bailey McCann, Colin Curry, Virginia Roberts, Ben London, and me, Adam Pranica. For more information about John Roderick, his music, his writing or tour dates, visit johnroderick.com.